Oh boy, we've got a good episode for you today, friends and listeners. Today on the program, we've got Sarah Tavel, who is a venture capitalist at the legendary and enigmatic venture capital firm, Benchmark Capital. Their benchmark is one of the most renowned firms in the world for picking amazing companies. Companies that, I mean, if I even listen them off, it would basically be your home screen on your phone. We cover a whole range of topics, how VCs work together, how she chooses an investment, specific examples of what made her pass and then later invest in a company that she now loves and, and really knew even at the time that it wasn't a no, but, but a not yet. And what that's like for the founder, we cover the Gardner hype cycle and its implications for what this psychological journey is like, whether it's launching a new company or launching a new feature. We talk about the stories that have helped shape who she has become. She's become damn impressive. So listening to those stories is a lot of fun for me, as well as talking about Twitter, of all things, and, and specific product advice to not only improve Twitter, but the implications that Twitter has on the discourse that, that we find ourselves in, in today. We cover all of those things and much more in today's episode. If you dig below the line, we would love a rating or review. You don't even Now you don't even have to give a review. You can just give a little five star. You can smash on five stars on your favorite podcast app in three seconds. And it's how podcast platforms rank and suggest new podcasts to people. So every rating really matters. And we really appreciate all the folks that have already left a review and especially all the five-star ones we've gotten. But it doesn't matter what star you give it or what review you give us, we read and appreciate every single one. So thank you. And if you want to take three seconds to do it right now, no, it's much appreciated. Below the Line is brought to you by Playcast Media. Do you want the easiest way to set up a professional premium podcast from your home or office? Go to playcastmedia.com. That's playcastmedia.com and get their premium podcast in a box delivered right to your door. Everything you need for a premium podcast, all the equipment, info that guides you on how to set it up, everything you need, editorial help, consultation help, the production help, adding in music, whatever you need, they have it, playcastmedia.com. I'm recording this right now on Playcast Equipment and it is the best I've ever I've ever sounded on on audio equipment, and I need the best audio equipment to make my voice tolerable. So go to playcastmedia.com, check them out. That's playcastmedia.com for the simplest, most straightforward way to have a premium professional podcast studio in your home or office. With all of that said, and without further ado, let's get into it with Sarah. This is Below the Line. We're live. Sarah, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited about this drink. I know. We've got some Rebel plant-based matcha latte right here. Listeners know that I love love matcha. What do you think of it? Mmm. It's got I like the coconut milk. Yeah, it's really, really good. I until you pointed out I hadn't read that it was coconut milk instead of actual milk and it is mm. really good i'm gonna be very caffeinated by the end of this yeah we were talking about this has about 100 milligrams is that what it said it says 80 to 100 it looks like yeah i like well, it i've had two cups of coffee so i'm off to a good start there we go you'll yeah. be 
you might crash later, but this this episode is gonna <laughs> it's gonna rock. Um, Isn't this supposed to sustain me? Isn't that the idea? It should. It should actually. Yeah, yeah matcha is. It's so much of caffeine or what we put in our bodies so wildly understudied. But what I have read is matcha not only has L-theanine in it, which will help keep you calm, but also it has catechins, which are complex molecules that the caffeine binds to, that then is harder to metabolize, meaning it's almost Mm. like nature's time-release caffeine. It's really yummy. Yeah. So at least for this episode, yeah, I think for the next hour plus, you'll be good. Good. What I'm going to, I want to kick off this episode and this uh, conversation with just what are your favorite aspects of your current stage of your career and being a, an, an investor and, and venture capitalist. I think one is what is widely regarded as one of the best firms in the world. Yeah. Well, look like favorite aspects of this stage of my career. Like I love what I do and I love the firm that I get to do it at. Like, you know, I'm, as as you know, I'm an investor at a firm called Benchmark, and it means I get to work with both uh, my partners every day. So just an, just an incredible group of people there, and then the founders that that we back. And one of the nice things about where I am in my career is that I'm in a way just starting my portfolio. I have four investments right now. I'm on the board of four companies. And so it means that I get to spend a lot of time with those companies and then also just continue to spend a lot of time with new founders every day. The like natural evolution of a VC's career is 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 two things, which is one, you over time you you make more and more investments. So you sit on more and more boards and you end up having a full plate just spending time with the companies that you invest in. And so that ends up spending kind of taking a lot of your time and you have less and less time to spend learning or, or spend just in the field, meeting with a, a broad group of people. And then the second thing that happens is that, as, as one of my partners, Mitch Lasky says, uh, you become a pathologist over time. So you, you, you know, if you've been in the business for too long, you become much better at seeing all the things that can go wrong instead of having that idealism that, you know, that just desire to fall in love with a founder and a company and then make the bet with them that that you have as a newer VC. And so I just live in this wonderful place where I get to, you know, I, I'm still building my portfolio. So I still have all that time. And I'm still idealistic enough that I'm not afraid to make those jumps. And it is, a, it's such a strange job, I imagine. As an angel investor, it's, they're in the same area code, but they're, but they're different. And I love angel investing. And, and I love investing in, in founders when it's two people or one person in the beginning of an idea or they're just getting going. It's quite different when you have a firm, you have the legacy of the firm, you have a litany of LPs in the firm, limited partners mm-hmm. that are investors in the firm that are ultimately who you all are working for as well as as the founders themselves. One of the things that, that I imagine is so hard to, to stay optimistic around or really to maintain <laughs> is you basically, I was telling a friend uh, the other day that it's you're trying to find anomalies and the, the most successful companies are are anomalous mm-hmm. by nature. Yep. And yet you're also applying pattern matching mm-hmm. or pattern thinking developed over, I guess for me, 10 years of, of building and yeah. and seven years of, of investing. It's it, such a strange, just articulating that doesn't seem to make It's hard. Sense. I mean, I wrote a blog post about how venture, like being great at venture is about knowing when to seem crazy. 
And it's kind mm-hmm. of, you know, we talk a lot about being contrarian and right. And it's a very hyper-rational way of describing the emotional feeling of thinking or realizing that there's something crazy about a bet you want to make. I just, I mean, I, I wrote a blog post about being great at venture capital is about knowing when to seem crazy. And the idea was, is that, you know, when we talk a lot about being contrarian and right, and it's this very hyper-rational view of how to make great investments, because obviously, if it's an investment that's consensus, then everybody already knows that it's something that could be successful. And then what happens is that those companies get a lot of competition, which drives the price of the, the, the valuation in which you invest up which makes it hard for you to actually realize the types of returns that you hope to see when you're making a really great investment. And could have, uh, if it seems obvious, also invite a lot of competition to their actual core service. Exactly. And drives their actual value down. That's right. It's interesting. So it's very much about being, you know, having a unique perspective and, and, and having conviction. And you have to have, it's not about just, oh, I have a gut about the founder. I have like, I'm just going to jump. Like there's, there is a rational basis to contrarianism, which is, um, you know, having core insights that, you know, prepared mind that lets you see something that other people don't see. But at the same time, like, even when you are making those investments and you have the deep conviction, it, it still from the outside can seem crazy. And I remember, you know, when I was at Bessemer, we invested in Skype early on. Way back when, the Skype founders had been the founders of Kazaa, which was that file yeah. sharing program. So they were wanted by the FBI. Like there was, you know, I believe there was a warrant what, for what their year arrest. Was it? Oh gosh, I mean, it must have been two thousand four or two, maybe two thousand four mm-hmm. around, plus or minus two years. Yeah. And you know, that was a crazy investment. Uh, I remember when we made the Pinterest investment. It was four people. It was an obscene valuation at the time. It was forty pre, which. You know, 40 pre for a Series A company doesn't sound crazy now in 2019, but in 2011, when we made that investment, it was a crazy thing. Like I thought, you know, I was going to get fired over it, but it was, it was crazy. And yet you also feel the the craziness of making that investment and also the excitement that this, it's the same energy, you know, to be feel crazy and also feel excited. And that's what they typically feel like. Can you walk me through the specifics of what, what made Pinterest? Uh, you know, achieve a forty million dollar pre money valuation. What were the dynamics? Maybe it was the was it the competition? Was it just the confidence of the founders? Was it the traction? I mean, it was. I mean, at the time, it was thirty thousand users, so it was really? not the traction. Wow. Um, it was definitely the founders played the process very well. And it felt like at the time, Jeremy Levine at Bessemer and I were the ones who met with the company to do the deal. We thought it was this super competitive deal. We thought like, oh my gosh, I, I, like, I remember pacing up and down the hallway at Bessemer, like being like, I don't want to lose this investment. And then I only found out during my going away party at Pinterest, uh, Ben, who had had a couple of drinks by that point, confessed that we were the only term sheet that they got. It, and it was just such a funny moment because, again, like I remember I had been tracking Pinterest for several months and I just kept on seeing them grow on Alexa. And I and I I just had such conviction when we met the company that like this was one that we were going to invest in. And wh- how many years had you been into investing at this point? I mean, I had been at I, this was tw- so about five years 
And and so I had such conviction and I just felt like this was the hot company. And so you kind of go into the meeting thinking this is the hot company. And then they reflect that back that like, yeah, we're the hot company. And you never would imagine that Ben and Paul were who had been trying to raise money, had been going up and down Sand Hill Road and hadn't gotten a single term sheet. We were like we were literally the only term sheet that they got. But it was, you know, you just you just don't know. And it's not important, really. Like the I never I mean, a lot of VCs ask. So I hear when they're meeting with a founder, like what other VCs are you speaking to? And that's not a question that ever would come to my head because it makes no impact on my evaluation of that company. Right. Well, and going back to your first point of of seeming crazy, then the longer the list of people that, I mean, yeah, it has no relevance to yeah. trying to find, well, and also trying to find the anomalous. Yeah. yeah. You just have to be so comfortable being an independent thinker in this business. Like if you're not comfortable there, then it's just going to be really hard to be an outlier. What are the things that you have felt that are, that make that position uncomfortable? Like I hear you in, in saying that you well, need to be comfortable in it. What are the things that you've felt? Maybe it was in those first five years or maybe it was the Pinterest well, there's 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 sometimes number one, you have to be comfortable being short term wrong and being long term right. So I remember I won't name names, but I remember passing on a company early on in my career and I just knew it was gonna be niche and I knew it wasn't gonna like become a big company. And then it became the hottest consumer company of that year for two years. And then it did exactly what I expected it to do, which was it wasn't able to cross the chasm and ended up imploding. And it's just a, it's just a nothing now. And so there's kind of these these two years, though, where it looks like you made a really stupid decision of mm. passing and you just have to kind of continue to base yourself in the original things that you saw. And so I actually have practice that I do when I really dig in on a company as I write a postmortem for myself. You know, it's something where I say, here are the reasons. This is the company. These are the reasons that I liked the company and I was leaning in on it. Here are the reasons why I ultimately passed. This is what the deal would have been that I could have done. And then I can look back on that over time and see, you know, to tune over time. So that's that's number one. And that's just for the ones that you pass on? Just or? the ones I pass on. I mean, at most firms, not at Benchmark, but at most firms, you write an investment memo, which usually has the investment thesis, the reasons why you think we should invest. And so I don't need to write that. The second thing that you have to be prepared for, the discomfort, is that sometimes you'll make a decision for all the right reasons and you'll still be wrong with the outcome. Annie Duke has this book called Thinking in Bets where she talks about resulting. So the idea is that you have to really focus on your decision making and all the inputs into your decision making and not judge that process and your decision making by the outcome itself, which is, you know, as you know, as she can put it, like, she she's a poker player, a world championship poker mm. player. And she talks about like there's, you know, there's still chance. There's still probabilistic decisions that are happening and you're still like you can get lucky on the river. And there's something very similar that happens in venture, which is that you can make a decision for all the right reasons. And then there's still, you know, someone gets that like straight on the river. They just something happens and they get lucky. And it doesn't necessarily mean you made the wrong decision. But you have to kind of always be thinking about probabilistically. Does it go the other way too? Where oh, absolutely, you make the wrong well, or for know, the wrong reasons, and then it you get you're the one that gets the lucky. Oh, sure. Well, of river. course, like you, you know, 
that the book they both happen and it takes a lot of intellectual honesty with yourself when you get lucky that way too yeah how has your mindset on these things shifted over now that you've been investing and i know i want to talk about going into operating a pinterest as well but now that you've been investing for the last 15 years or at least uh, had that hat i imagine you still had that hat on or that perspective Mm -hmm. even when uh, you were within pinterest but uh, what have been some of the shifts that you thought back then that now you're like, man, that was totally wrong? Yeah, the biggest one I would say is that, you know, Bessemer, which is where I started, is just an incredible firm and they have an incredible practice of being investors and and really nurturing, teaching an investor mindset. And there's many ways that venture funds can build a fund. Bessemer, at least while I was there, I think it's it's changed quite a bit since I left in 2011, had always been kind of an East Coast DNA firm, which means that they made great funds again and again and again, not by getting those billion dollar gains, but by getting a lot of gains that are the two to 4x risk adjusted return type investments, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there was always an orientation towards What's the risk-adjusted return on your capital? Doing a scenario analysis, so thinking through all the possible scenarios for an investment, really thinking through the downside scenarios. So, how are we protected here? What's you know, is there structure that we need on the terms to to make sure that even in the middling outcomes, we'll still get the return that we want? And again, like Bessemer has changed quite a bit since I was there, but that was definitely the the philosophy, the way of thinking um, that I learned. Then, you know, when I started at Greylock, and part of the reason why when I left Pinterest to go back to venture, I decided to go to Greylock, was that I really wanted to learn a Silicon Valley way of thinking about venture, which was much more not about the what can go wrong scenarios, but what can go right. And I think that one of the things that we realized actually at Bessemer was that when we would do these scenario analysis, we would always underestimate the magnitude of the outlier scenario. You know, the the what could go right scenario, it was almost, I felt like when I was putting the scenario analyses together, it was almost like I didn't, you you didn't want to be so crazy to say that this could be a X billion dollar company. You know, it was far more kind of restrained and in thinking about how big the outcomes could be. And then when you get to a, a more Silicon Valley firm, like a Greylock and especially like a benchmark, it's much more about what can go right, like how you know, you don't think like how big can this get, but there is very much a like what could we be missing that could go right for this company that would mean that we miss a really big outcome. And just the realization that the way other firms, like Silicon Valley firms in particular, make their funds is through that power law, you know, where you have mm-hmm. the one or two companies that really end up being the differentiators and whether a fund is a great fund or a good fund. What's the historicity of that? Why Why would the East, why do you think East Coast views it one way and, and how did the West Coast uh, yeah, come yeah, into that insight? It's very much like a private equity mm. roots in on the East Coast. And so, you know, private equity like is typically deploying a lot of capital. It's in companies that tend to have cash flows. You know, you're thinking not about ever losing money. It's about having, you know, an IRR, or a low multiple outcome, but you can just deploy a lot of capital. So it's a very, like, you're never investing in private equity in a scenario where you could lose your money. Mm-hmm. And so that's the mindset that it permeates 
the East Coast investing. And so when someone says, oh, they're more of an East Coast firm, that's typically what they mean by that. They're more oriented towards downside protection, lower multiple outcomes, and kind of more steady businesses. Whereas in, in on the West Coast, and again, I'm stereotyping a little bit, but the West Coast is much more about, oh, you can only lose your money once if you get it wrong, but think about how much you can make if you get it right. right. And that DNA was taught by the Googles, the Amazons, a lot of the, the kind of early internet, you know, and internet 1.0 companies, the Ebays, of course, that just made entire funds, if not multiples of funds on great investments. Right. Yeah. There's to what we we're saying of just the intersection of anomalous pattern matching. Yeah. There's not many things that each anomalous company has in common, but some of them that they do have in common is, yeah, the early investors made 5,000x right. their money, which- and Multiple returns on their fund. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Which is, is a world I don't know too much about 30 years ago, 40 years ago, but nothing in Silicon Valley, very few things probably had that type of return profile before you had, I guess you had that probably with Microsoft and Apple and some of the, the hardware companies. But yeah, that's it seemed to have been an explosion in the last 20 years where if you could pick up on that insight early enough, then you follow on from Google and you go in, if you can, and you go into PayPal and you go into Facebook. Right. Well, it's part of what was so exciting about the internet is that you had this unlocking of distribution. And so you could, you could things, I mean, you had two things, that and then this greenfield opportunity, which just meant that there was the ability to grow really, really quickly, which is a lot of what defines great great venture outcomes. I've never heard it described. That's very helpful to see it in the light of private equity roots mm. versus, and maybe it's just closer to to the forest or closer to the trees, whichever would apply, right, right, right. of seeing these these crazy returns. And then you you can't help but to mathematically say, okay, that's what we should be looking for. And and I think you just nailed it also, which, and this is probably part of how Bessemer's own culture has changed, is that once you taste an exit that is a billion-dollar exit or a multi-hundred-million-dollar exit, then you want more of that. You mm-hmm. know, you're not, you're not interested in building a fund with 50 or 100-million-dollar exits like returns. You want to make the returns, you want to find the returns that become the billion dollar gains. That That is infectious by itself and it changes the culture. For listeners that might be founders and don't have this side of this exposure to your role or just the, the exposure to the differences between private equity and, and venture capital, how would you describe that to, you know, like a five-year-old? Uh, the, difference, the differences the, between venture and private equity? Right. And, and why those roots? In my mind, I'm kind of picking up on with private equity and aiming for each investment being, like you said, two, four X, five X, that lends you to find five X opportunities versus what would you look for in a in a benchmark opportunity? Well, I mean, venture embraces the fact that most of the investments that you make traditionally, and I've I've never actually done this math for benchmarks portfolio, but this is the common wisdom in, in Silicon Valley is that out of the 10 investments that you make, X number will will be zeros. And so you're embracing that risk because for the ones that go right, it'll fill the holes, as they say, for the ones that that didn't succeed. In, in private equity, you're deploying so much capital in each company, typically. And the ones that go right don't go so right that there's enough to spread around to fill the holes. So it's much more than about 
finding investments that are stable enough that have what we call downside protection. You know, there's you know, there's the cash flows, or you just you just have confidence that even if the growth doesn't accelerate or it plateaus, that there's still something there that will get you your money back. And so it's it's uh, it's just a different philosophy, a different orientation. It tends to be, you know, it it depends on on the firm. Each there's it's hard to generalize across all private equity, but there's a there's been a history of financial engineering, so creating structures in the the investments that they make and the security that they buy to guarantee those types of returns. Has the delta between venture capital and and private equity thinking and just venture capital between West Coast and East Coast, do you think that's grown further apart? I think, think it that- hasn't. I mean, I think that there is definitely a bifurcation a bit with private equity, which is that you see a lot of private equity now buying software businesses, right. um, the Vistas. Um, and you have the LP, and for listeners, the LPs are often similar LPs. They'll invest in a private yes. equity fund, they'll invest in and benchmark. And and so now they have this exposure to these venture type returns. That's right. But the, And that's like the mega private equity funds. Then there's what you also see is a lot of firms that used to be kind of what you would think of as more private equity going earlier and earlier. Um, and it's just been, you know, I call it the kind of soft bank domino effect, which is that you have a mega fund that comes in and it changes the equation for every single stage of investing before that, where you have a fund that comes in and it's just an order of magnitude bigger than any other fund before it. And so for them, writing a $300 million check when you're a $100 billion fund is like benchmark writing a one million dollar check or a one a quarter million dollar check, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's the the way that you diligence the company, the the speed at which you can write that check, the 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 level of rigor which was with which you diligence the investment is completely different when it's such a small percentage of your fund. And so what that means is that it creates a domino effect where then the people who used to write the three hundred million dollar checks, the private equity guys, then they have someone coming in and having a different way of evaluating a business. And so then they go earlier to try to find opportunities before they get scooped up by that that kind of new mega fund. And that creates a domino effect where you have funds going earlier and earlier than they used to, but the check size is still being distorted, still being kind of closer to what they're used to. And so it's just a weird distortion that's had, happened in the market in the last few years. And I want to get into to more of the history of your background, but how has that influenced benchmark today? Has that influenced benchmark today in the shifting market, or is it kind of like, oh, we know our place? You know, I think it's influenced venture. It has not influenced benchmark. So, mm-hmm. you know, what is happening right now that you see across VC firms, and it's been obviously a very successful strategy for a lot of these firms, is going more vertically integrated in a way. So, starting a seed fund, starting a growth fund, like going bigger, 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 and really scaling the funds themselves, adding new partners, creating platform teams so that they can give their GPs more leverage to take on more boards. Um, Benchmark, we have stayed the same. So we still do Series A and Series B investing. We don't do seed investments. We're always about taking a board seed and being an active participant in the companies that we back. And we're still, you know, we'll never be more than six GPs. We're five GPs right now. And so it's, you know, in a way, 
we feel a little bit like, uh, what's that expression? Like everybody's jiving and we're, do you know what I'm talking about? No. There's a, yeah, we feel a little bit like we're, we're, we're even more different and, and hopefully more differentiated than the what's happening in the rest of the venture market. Is that part of the mindset of being wrong in the short term and right in the long term? Well, I, I sure hope so. Yeah. I sure hope so. But, you know, look, it's like there are many successful strategies, right? Like when you look at the venture firms out there and even individual investors, there's no one way of doing the business. And we've just chosen a way of doing the business where we feel like we don't want to scale our business at all. We want to be 100% focused on just scaling the founders with, with, with whom we work and not delegating any part of our job. And it's its own way of doing the job. And, you know, it's for some founders, it's exactly what they want. And for some, they'd rather have a different, a different package. I know with uh, my experiences as founder, and we, I won't mention the other firms, but we ended up doing our Series A with Andreessen Horowitz, and that was the pitch. Probably 80% of the pitch was this uh, massive platform to help with everything from marketing, sales and distribution to business development and recruiting. This was 2012 and 2013, and then they did our, our Series B after that. And so we really got to know them really well. And there was amazing things about that experimental shift and how to build a uh, venture capital firm because they were largely the first to to start to do that and build that kind of platform out that you're yeah. talking about. But it is the below the line version of that experience is it's really hard. And that was early on. And maybe that's, you know, in 10 years. So they started in 2009. So it was maybe three years into the experiment. But it was it's really difficult to do that for your portfolio companies, especially if you have to what you're talking about. If you have seed fund, if you have a seed fund, then then you have 150 companies. It's very difficult yeah. to do that. And the insight I had was, you know, at Greylock we had probably the best talent team out there: uh, Jeff Markowitz and, uh, and Dan Portillo. Jeff was the executive recruiter, and Dan, you know, had this small team of incredibly productive people, and we just we were placing engineers and companies left and right. And I remember when one of my companies, Sonder, uh, the CEO, we were looking to hire a CRO. And I remember this, I was like, oh, this is fantastic. I have Jeff Markowitz. So I kind of threw the CRO search over to Jeff. And it was, you know, oh, great. I have this leverage. I have this incredible person here who's the best in the business and will do it better than anybody else can. But then what ended up happening is I realized that it was it became a little bit of a game of telephone where it gave me scale because, and, you know, it gave me leverage because Jeff was doing a lot of the work, but it actually made Francis's job a little bit harder because, yeah, because he would talk to me about something and then he would talk to Jeff about something and then Jeff would talk to me and then I would talk to Jeff. And then we were always playing this game of kind of triangulating telephone. And I never really had the full picture in my mind of what Francis needed, how I could coach him, what like, you know, being really shoulder to shoulder with him. Whereas at Benchmark, kind of the model is that we're not going to delegate that. And we're going to be doing, you know, I'm getting on the call with you and we're figuring out the right job spec for the role we need. And then I'm doing the, you know, sell meetings and interviews and, and closing meetings and whatever it takes, because for me to be the best partner that I can be for you, it means that I have to be thinking about the business and thinking about your needs 
as holistically as possible and right. not delegating any part of it. Right. And so it, again, there's no wrong or right way to do this business, but we've just taken a different approach because that's the way we would prefer to be partnering with the founders we I, work with. I love that you mentioned that aspect of things, of the game of, of telephone, because then in my commitment to listeners is to be insanely honest about my own experience and and perspective on things and sometimes gets me in hot water. But my true feeling is that it's the game of telephone with the talent person, the executive, the you know, recruiter. It's the game of telephone with the person that's giving you marketing help, with BD help, yes. with the sales and distribution help. And you're having to retell the story, rebuild context. Yes. And if you are a firm with with 200 companies, not only is that so difficult to build a context for one individual to be able to help as the head of recruiting for 200 companies, it's damn near impossible. But for the CEO, you're just like, okay, I just got CC'd to someone I've never met before. Now I need to build context for them on what our company does and what we're looking for. It is harder yeah, on and, the And the what CEO. I tell founders is, again, there is a lot of value to it. But the question that you have to ask yourself when you engage with any of these platform teams is, is the team more about scaling the GP or the CEO? Hmm. And that is the litmus test for what you want What is the spend difference? Time. Well, it's like there's some things where it's just very clearly about giving the GP more leverage, you know, making it possible for the GP to take on more board seats. And there's some things that are, are really differentiated, like the customer development, as an example, that Andreessen does. Like if you're an early stage software company, it can be, I imagine, I mean, I've never been in that, those shoes, but it can be, I would think, quite useful to have a lot of people kind of on a silver platter that you can go pitch to. You know, you don't have to worry about the BDR effort of getting those those contacts. So there's there's something that's definitely valuable there, but it's not a buffet that you want access to, right? Like it's very much something that you have to be very um, specific about how you use it. Otherwise, it just backfires and creating a lot of busy work and, and distraction for the founder. Mm-hmm. What is, um, you talked about the difference between GP and, and the founder. And to the founder, the, the narrative is pitched to where it's like, VC firms exist for founders. We're here to find great founders, support great founders. Is that really true? Now that you have seen both sides of it and you've been at three different firms, is that really accurate? Or would you say there's, from my perspective, as only being on the founder side and then being as a as a solo investor, which I love being kind of this motorcycle solo mm-hmm. investor more than anything. It's, I really, really love it. But what I've seen with uh, VC firms in the past is there's the commitment to LP returns above all else. That's what they're thinking about. But the narrative on Twitter, the narrative on their blog is all about finding great founders. And that dichotomy, I never recognized it, never saw it until mm-hmm. I was able to to sit somewhere halfway in between the table. Um, have it, Does that ring true at all when you hear that in terms of the narrative publicly and, and the narrative privately? Well, the way I would describe it is that at the end of the day, we are fiduciaries. We are investing the, com- the money of endowments for institutions, for pension funds, for, uh, for, for universities. Like there's, we, there's a specific job that we have as venture capitalists. The means to that end, which is returning capital, is founders, great founders. Like there's, 
there's no way that we would be able to do our business and build the companies that we seek to build, invest in and help build if it isn't for great founders. And so I think I think the two things aren't actually in like have attention. They're consistent with each other, which is that like the reason I wake up every morning is to find great founders that I can work with. Like that that is what we do. And it's because if you do find those great founders, you are able to go on a journey together that leads to the types of outcomes that we all seek to do. In in investing, there's that phrase of the horse and the jockey, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. you make the bets on on uh, early stage investing. Someone would say the the jockey is more important than the horse because the the founders are going to be the ones figuring everything out, and late stage investors, private equity investors, like. TPG will uh, you know publicly say it's all about the horse mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and the jockey is if you find a great business then the jockey is replaceable what what is your perspective on on that maybe in terms of the continuum of early stage towards later stage sure and- yeah I mean the way when I when I am coaching my founders I always tell them like look at the seed it's a hundred percent you and the vision that you tell and 0% about the data, you know, like there's nothing really for, there's nothing there. Then at, at the A, you can kind of just imagine a slider where on the one side, it's the founder and the vision that they tell. And the other side of the spectrum is the, the, the numbers of the business. And as you, as the company progresses and valuations go up, you just start moving that slider from one side, the founder side to the other side, which is the data. Like, so what I always tell my founders is by the time you're ready for your like series D, like they barely need to meet you. It's all about the numbers, which is not actually true, but it kind of tells, you know, it's it's the point. Um, And so I like for me personally, like when I meet a company, it is absolutely what gets me leaning in is the founder is the, the vision that they have is it's hearing something and being able to believe in something that I didn't, believe in before. And then what gets me over the line finally is though also an evaluation of of the the market that they're playing in. Are they going to be pushing against a rope? Is there is there going to be a wind in their in their sails? Like something, you know, we talk in venture about the why now. And and it's always, is there something that will help them achieve what they want to achieve? Or is there a structure in the market that's going to make it tough? What isn't it? What's a specific example? where that that equation has been really helpful? Well, I mean, I'll give the example more recently of a company I invested in called HipCamp. And so HipCamp, you know, is building, there was just a great New Yorker piece about the company and the founder, Alyssa. It's building what you could call an Airbnb for land. But the idea is like private landowners will post their land on HipCamp and let people camp there they might have a yurt or a tree house or a a log cabin whatever it is rv hookup that type of thing and so it's one of these ideas that actually there was no catalyst like a new technology it was really Alyssa, the founder seeing an opportunity and creating the company but when i thought more about the why nows there i realized a few things i realized number one is that I looked at Google Trends and noticed that people are searching more for camping and more, you know, for RV rentals than they ever have before. And it's because 
we have people living in more and more urban environments connected to technology. We're tethered to our phones and wanting a very human, very natural thing, which is to connect with nature. And so you have this like growing swell of people wanting that experience, that connection. And then at the same time, you have a young population. We always stereotype around millennials, but I think it's really millennials, Gen Z, whatever it is, that are seeking out experiences more so than than things. And it's, you know, Instagram, it's Snapchat, whatever it is, people want to share these experiences. And so what can be more classic, like Instagram shareable than being in Redwoods in Big mm-hmm. Sur on, you know, being, you know, alone in a, on a campground somewhere. And you don't actually have that experience in the public campgrounds anymore because they're completely overrun right. by people. I mean, it just become so popular that you have to book a public campground months in advance and you have to put up with those campgrounds then being completely crowded which is not the experience of connecting with nature you want. And so these two things that were just very clearly going to be wins in the sale of the of the company. Do you mind walking listeners through what the actual logistical steps were of, was it an email intro that first put you in touch with the company? Was it your own insight into the Google trend and then finding a company? What's what was the the specific logistical steps? Well, what happened is actually when I was at Greylock, Bryce Roberts um, from OATV uh, emailed me and introduced me to the company. And I met Alyssa then early on. And this was for the seed round. And the company was extremely early at the time. Like she had just had the core insight of letting landowners post land on her site. But she only had maybe a handful of hosts at the time. And she hadn't figured out how to scale supply. And as you know, when you're building a marketplace, figuring out how to scale supply is where the rubber hits the road. So there was a lot to figure out and a lot of execution. And I wasn't yet convinced that it could be a big company. You know, there was something that felt niche to me as a, as a New Yorker of a site that was just about land and letting people camp on it. You know, and this is the type in the early days of hip camp, it was letting people who, you know, have a tent and know how to drink water out of, of a out of a stream and cook on a campfire. Like that is not me. And that's not, I mean, it's actually it's it is a sizable population, but it's not a huge company. Mm-hmm. What year was that? I would guess it was 2000 Call it 2016. And then when did when did benchmark do the investment? Right after I in October 2017. Okay. So yeah. there was kind of this. So it was like year. a year. Yeah, that's right. So it was mm-hmm. a year. And then what ended up happening is that I just I kept in touch with Alyssa. I was really impressed by her. She was very good at engaging, you know, me. And so we would do some product whiteboard sessions. I introduced her to a couple people. And then what ended up happening is that we reconnected around October, September of 2017. And I realized a couple things when I reconnected with her, which was number one, that she'd figured out how to scale supply. And, you know, that is, as you know, again, like it's such a critical, hard thing to do with a marketplace is unlocking supply. There's a reason why that supply is not online yet. And so it's always about how do you do that? And and the second thing was that as she unlocked supply, demand followed, which is, again, like the, you know, that's a second thing, which is usually what marketplaces 
you you have to find the harder side of the equation. And when you get that harder side, which is more often than not the supply side, then the demand side follows. And so she was getting, you know, she had to have an effort to acquire the supply side, but then the demand side was just showing up, which is a really promising sign. Right. And, and for, for listeners that want more deep dive into marketplaces, Lenny Ruchitsky did a deep dive episode yes. uh, on on here and uh, about three weeks ago or so. And he also wrote up a, an amazing write-up on on how to scale marketplace, cool. figuring these things out. But uh, okay, so she had figured those things yeah. out. And then I also realized that the market, that what HipCamp was doing was much bigger than I had originally understood. Like number one, it was growing now beyond just hardcore campers into people that were more like me, glampers, you know, people who wanted some kind of pre-existing structure that they were going to sleep in. And and so there was there was something that was A, opening up the addressable market for hip camp. But then B, I also realized that the market was much bigger than I thought it was. Like, you know, there I, I won't quote the numbers now because I can't remember them precisely, but they were they were an order of magnitude bigger than I actually thought that they had been. And and then also believe that if HipCamp was successful, it would be able to grow the market even more. And part of it is that camping, getting outside, really living in these natural experiences feels to most people inaccessible. And so if there is a company like, like HipCamp that can own that brand and make doing this more accessible, that felt to me like a real opportunity to grow the market even more. I, and I love I love the idea of, of HipCamp I've only been on the site maybe once or twice, but I went on a RV share or I did RVshare.com to rent an RV last earlier this year. And I went from never renting an RV, having no, no clue like what renting an RV entailed mm -hmm. from the, you know, the hoses and the sure, like, yeah. like hooking it up and uh, the waste and, and went from not having any clue about how to do it, but feeling like, okay, this could be fun and other people do it. And there was that Robin Williams movie about doing this. Seems like it'd be fun for my daughter and, and my wife and, and and our dog. So I was like, okay, let's, let me try to figure it out. Seven minutes later, I had an RV rented on rvshare.com. And I was like, okay, that first part, very easy. I have an RV rented and it's waiting for me down uh, by the by the airport to go pick up. And I'm like, you know, I'm glamper for sure, at least. I wanted to wade into camping territory with with all the amenities first. And when we went on the experience, when we went on the the trip, we went up to the High Sierras. It was the best mm. vacation I have ever really? ever been on, and the best. It was three days, no, four days, three nights, and two nights in the High Sierras and uh, High Sierras, and one night in Napa. And I mean, right when we pulled up to our little site and we did the the High Sierra Music Festival, so they had the camping figured out. Yeah. So I didn't quite have the need for hip camp, but I came back from that trip and I was like, holy shit, there's two major observations I've just made. And now I want to advocate to people is one, camping and you know, RVing is unbelievably fun. That's awesome. And And really like when we went on it, people were like, that just seems so weird. So you Why need not to go? go on HipCamp. There's yeah. a filter. I mean, it's one of the core features is to do a search to only see land that has RV hookups. 
Really? Yeah. yeah. So that was you can find beautiful places within driving distance of here yeah. that will let you re-experience those those good nights. It was it was unbelievable. And that was the first observation. Was like I'm going to tell everyone they need to be renting RVs because yeah. this is incredible. And then the second second observation was, how do I figure out a way to invest in this space? So kudos, yeah. major kudos to you for for figuring that out in 2017. Mm-hmm. But it it really was this. We were chatting about this right before we we turn on the mics that you're finding misplaced low optimism. That's where you want to be as a, mm-hmm. as an investor, at least in in the parlance that uh, some of the best advice I've gotten. And when we went on that RV trip, yeah, every one of our friends, there was maybe one or two friends that were like, oh, that's going to be awesome. They're (laughs) going to love it. But I'd say maybe 90% of the people that we told and the ones that we tried to get to go with us to to the music festival by renting RV, they were like, "Ah," they were just, it was so foreign to them. Yeah. And there was very low optimism around it. And it's completely misplaced because being able to camp under the stars and I, I'm, I guess you can't really consider it camping, but RV under the stars. And we pulled up to where we, where our little spot was, and turned off the headlights. And had I was, my wife was in the back of of the RV. And I was like, turn off the headlights. And I was like, here, come up here. I want you to see something. She walked up to the front, looked out the the windshield, and saw 30, 40 cows, <laughs> a little uh, barbed wire fence this beautiful valley and and the sun had just set. I mean, you couldn't get that view at at that type of view at a Ritz-Carlton. You should see. I wonder whether that that space is actually on Hip Camp already. Yeah. That would be it would be amazing to to go back there. Yeah. And and it really I came back and I was like, oh my God, that is and you know the Japanese have the whole concept of forest bathing, of going into nature. And you're right, going to other places to to camp it's i mean it's you you're almost like it's like a stockyard it's you're just so you've got good. eight feet and yeah. to your left and right you've got neighbors i mean i i i don't know if you've ever done this but going to a place where there's actually no cell phone reception and no wi-fi you will go away for two days and feel like you were gone for a week that's what it was like yes yeah. it was it was it was so much more than just I mean, the visuals were amazing, but it was so much more than just the immediate experience of being in an RV, although that was psychologically pretty cool just to have everything with you. You can take, we could go to a different spot or we Mm -hmm. drove to Napa and it was just like, you know, our little domicile was going to be the same. And we, but it was so much more than that. It was just this, this complete disconnection. It was, you know, you go to an amazing hotel in Hawaii or in Northern California and and yeah, you still have, you're completely plugged in. You got, I mean, Wi-Fi is the amenity or mm-hmm. free Wi-Fi is the amenity right. rather than, yeah, that disconnection. And I couldn't agree with you more that this saturation of technology is making us crave um, a disconnected experience like Hip Camp. What about it? You said that Alyssa was really impressive even in the first few meetings. And, and I think you touched on her following up with you or engaging with mm-hmm. you. Can you tell me a little bit more of what what was so impressive about that first meeting and and what did you mean by engaging with you? You kind of said it with a smile as if most founders maybe don't uh, take that tack. Well, I mean, she has incredible clarity of vision and is a, just a you know a mission oriented founder. And like it's one of those cliches to describe uh, in in Silicon Valley, but 
there's something really important to me about being a mission-oriented founder. Like, I think the way I think about it is that, you know, there's, I hate, I think it was Moritz who talked about the mercenary founder. The way I think about it is like, there's some people that are going to be really good at optimizing the thing that's in front of them and just squeezing as much, you know, out of that company as is currently there already. But what I think is so special about the mission-oriented founders are the that they keep on unlocking a bigger and bigger opportunity because there's something beyond what the company is right in front of them that gets them, that just keeps on propelling them forward and keeps on having helping them see a bigger and bigger opportunity that they earn the right to go after. And so like with Alyssa, like she just had, she had that, she had that orientation. This was something that you could tell she just felt in her bones about what the mission of the company was, which was to get more people outside connecting with nature and how the company was going to get there. And, you know, there's in venture, we, someone once said that there's kind of, you look for founders that have an earned secret. You know, they, for whatever reason, they have a set of experiences that lets them see an opportunity that other people don't see. And that I really believe was, was Alyssa. And then what she did is, you know, sometimes I think when a founder, like, look, VCs, we're meeting companies all the time. We're meeting founders all the time. And there's a very few number of those times where we end up investing. And the hard thing for a founder is realizing that sometimes a no is really a not now. And what happened with Alyssa was that, you know, I, I really admire this about her is that she didn't take my passing on the seed as a no. She took it as a not yet. And so, you know. And was that her or was that your articulation? I can't. I probably said it. Like, I probably, I know, I can't remember for like um, precisely, but my guess and my hope that she would say this too is that I probably articulated clearly what was not yet proven with the company. And and so she took that upon herself to prove it. Through that journey, you know, I'm I spent a few years doing product at Pinterest. And so what she leaned on was that experience that I had of kind of bringing in people who aren't on your team, but can act in a way as extensions of your team to help push you in all the ways that you need to be pushed. And so she did that with me, pulling me in to do those whiteboarding sessions. And it was a way of us just maintaining and continuing to nurture a relationship. And I think that's the best way for a founder VC relationship to really start because all too often it's the speed dating experience that, you know, I just think in the same way that speed dating to find your partner, you know, the person you end up marrying is not optimal. I think it's the same thing for, for the venture board member and founder relationship. Have you ever had an investment where you made it or, or didn't make it, but maybe without naming names that you that you made that you really had huge questions about the founder and it and it I would worked never out. make an investment if I had huge questions about the founder. Mm-hmm. That's just way too inauthentic for me. And what about with your experience at Bessemer and Greylock or just previous firms? Have you seen it work out to where it's where you're like, I I have reservations and then it still works out. Or sure. Sure. Really? I mean that of course that happens. Like every you know, you know, there are many ways there I Gosh, I don't even know where to start because there's all the time like you are making decisions again with the best the best decision you can with the data that you have in front of you and having to accept that those decisions are probabilistic in nature. Like there's 
an X percentage outcome, you know, there's an X percentage probability that it's a zero. There's a Y percentage probability that's, a, you know, and so you go down to the the hopeful scenario, which is the grand slam, whatever that exit is. And the founder is usually the driving force behind those outcomes. And sometimes you read it wrong, or sometimes you actually read it correctly, but for whatever reason, things fell their way. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was, yeah, right in the long term, but the yes. short term you felt like, oh, maybe, yeah, maybe. could be. That's right. Do you have those moments of doubt where you are maybe not about the founder or something that's 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 that critical or foundational to your your perspective? But do you have strong moments of doubt when you are saying no oh, or yeah. or when you're saying yes? Well, you again back to those probabilities. Every company that you meet with has that possibility that. You know, and if it's a one percent or a five percent scenario, where you know, I actually just passed on a company a couple of weeks ago with a transcendent founder. I just thought this person was so special, but for reasons that you know I won't get into here, I just couldn't get comfortable with the structure of the company and whether it would build equity value over time. And it was an incredibly difficult conversation for me. It was not, I don't think it was that hard for him because he had many options, but it was a very difficult thing for me because A, it was a founder that I would have loved to work with. And B, those founders are the types of founders that end up making that scenario that you you think are the 1% scenario when you do your little spreadsheet actually much bigger. You know, they're they're the alchemists. And and uh, and so those are those are very difficult conversations because you're still you're building a human connection with someone when you're looking at a company. And so there is this like breaking up that happens. And then there's also the acknowledgement that this is a one way door decision. Like after I say yes or no, I can't go back in time and undo that decision. And so you're accepting in that moment both that you're breaking up with this founder whom you really wanted to work with. And also that you may 10 years from now really regret that conversation. What was it specifically like? Were, were the days leading up to it where you like, this could go either way. I need to just keep keep working on this, ruminating on this, and it could go either way. Was there something really palpable and, and loud in the back of your head of like, no, this I just can't get comfortable with it? Was it like the night before I need to sleep on it? You know, I think for me it was, you know, you always feel the emotional tug when you're with the founder. And and I almost, I kind of describe it a little bit as the the Gartner hype cycle where I just published a post on Gartner for a different reason. So it's on my mind. But, you know, think, imagine this, this energy threshold, like a line in the, on a graph. And what happens when you meet really special founders is that your enthusiasm, your energy for a company pops above that line. And then you leave the meeting with the founder and maybe you talk to your partners or maybe you reflect on the conversation you had and realize like, okay, but actually, you know, she said this, but is that right? Or like, well, I should have asked this, you know, and, and little by little, like you're the, the kind of kinetic energy that you have for the company that, that dot ends up falling again below the line. And then it takes the process every time or just think, in certain, I think tests. almost every time, like if, you know, it, unless you're like ready to give someone a check right in that first meeting, you are almost always going through this process of the, 
the reality distortion field that every great founder has, and then walking away and then having to ground yourself a little bit in the the realities of the space, doing the research, talking to whomever, you know, doing references, all those things. And then and talking to your founders. I mean your partners, of course. And then through that process, you either end up above the line again, you feel that energy, mm-hmm. or you realize that you're just not going to get there. And that's that's what I felt with this company is that I every time I spent time with the founder, I just wanted to work with this person. And then at the same time, had that kind of the rational side of me start to really think through the business and just feel like it was kind of pulling me down below the bar. That's a really interesting visual for that kind of arc or for that personal internal dialogue. And yeah, for listeners, the the Garner hype cycle is is kind of like what we saw with like 3D printing, where it's like, this is the future in 2016 or 2015, 2016. And then, and it's like, or cryptocurrency or something. And then it might be the future, but timing is everything. And, uh, and yeah. 3D printing wasn't necessarily the future in 2016, 2017, like it predicted. Maybe 2026, but that's a really helpful way to think about it because I totally agree that there can be these transcendent coffees or initial meetings. And and it's just like, wow, this is, and you, you can get hypnotized by a really amazing founder that has seemingly has all of the answers that you would look for. And you feel the passion. You it's palpably, it's like you're on the same frequency. And then you leave that, and then it's like, okay, there's some questions that are that are popping up, but that's uh, that's a really helpful. What was the blog post you wrote that had to do with Gardner? That was well, I wrote to do one about cycle. how it's a similar thing. I think that happens inside companies for features, where you know you are there's a trigger of some sort where someone comes up with the idea for a new feature or a hack about like whatever it is, and then there's this there's this internal process where hype gets built around a feature. You know, more and more people are pulled into it, becomes more and more visible. If it gets on the list of things that we're going to ship. And then there's always that reality once you ship something that for the most part, most features don't work right away. Right. I mean, there there are the Instagram stories, of course, of this world where you launch a feature and from day one, like everything's right about the feature and it gets massive adoption. But most features don't begin that way in the same way that most startups aren't Facebook and don't just work from day one. And then what happens then is that the features tend to then fall into that trough of disillusionment, right? Where, you know, for whatever reason, users aren't discovering it or they don't understand it or they discover it, but they don't use it or they use it, but then they don't like really deepen their relationship with the feature and then it gets abandoned by the product org and they go on to the next feature that's getting hyped up in the company. And you know, my post is about how you have to be really vigilant about making that kind of natural move because features need iteration in order to be able to get through that trough of disillusionment into what Gartner calls the plateau of productivity. Mm-hmm. And so it's about you know, making sure that you push through, you iterate on a feature and not just abandon it and move on to the next hot, shiny ball. Yeah, well, it is. And and for listeners, Sarah's a, a, a phenomenal product thinker from your time at, at Pinterest. It was, it was really helpful connecting with you years ago on that. And then 
and bringing into the fold with Tilt and, yeah, and introducing you to our product team and getting some of your insights there. But that is such an interesting psychological, uh, again, going to that visual of that hype cycle. And for, for listeners, I'll, I'll try to add a link to, to what the visual looks like, but it is essentially a curve that goes up, mm-hmm. like you said, above a line, a threshold, and then down below it, and, and then goes back up if it actually is here to stay. And uh, whether it's 3D printing, probably will yeah. see that. Yeah. Cryptocurrency probably will see that. And or- what's important though about that curve is that it doesn't just happen magically. It's not like a ball that goes down a hill and then mm-hmm. back up. It takes continued prog- like iteration, effort, right? yeah, and effort to push, to like build growth loops into a feature, to tweak the copy, to make it more discoverable, whatever it is in a product as an example. Right. It takes that iteration to be able to go up the plateau in the same way that for a new technological trigger, which is what the Gartner hype cycle is all about, it takes a process of maturing in order to be able to get through that that curve. Right. Yeah. It's the difference. It's and it's a long psychological yes. wait. It's the difference between the the Apple Newton and the the iPhone. It, it, there's and so many things clicking together, but to your point, effort and iteration being such a massive part of that. That is so, you know, the, the podcast in general is around creator psychology and not just the the real versions and below the line versions of people and their stories and and creation, but also that that psychology. It just that brings me to a one of my favorite quotes is, you know, we're wrong in brand new ways. And you're wrong on this feature being this amazing thing. It, it's so, so easy to then switch because you think you're being smart to, well, we need to be intellectually honest with ourselves that feature didn't work right and you're wrong in a brand new way right but you're wrong in that that aspect through that that trough of of disillusionment as you you uh, noted of just being like a, totally ripping out a feature mm-hmm. that didn't hit on on version one what are some of the the antidotes to that of I guess one on the upswing just limiting the excitement for v1 but how do you know whether a feature will get to that plateau or whether it's uh whether it is just a futile pursuit no i think like the way i approached it was number one is that when you are launching uh, a new feature you have to be in the growth mindset about the feature like you you can't expect that from the very beginning it will be perfect you have to go in thinking, what are the hypotheses that we have for the feature? And what are we looking to learn when we launch this? And then have, you know, not just be thinking, it's, it's a little bit like if you're, if you're only thinking towards the launch, you're not going to be in the mindset of pushing through after you get it out. You have to be thinking, okay, what do we want to learn with this launch? And then what are, what are the things that we're thinking about for V2? And just be oriented towards that. And then when you launch the feature itself, I think it's obviously you have to instrument the feature so you have all the data that you need in order to understand how users are engaging, what what parts of your hypotheses what would be right or wrong, doing user research and like really understanding are, is the core hypothesis of the feature right and there's just something else kind of falling down, like flipping flipping through the cracks for whatever reason, discoverability tends to be a big part of it or will you actually wrong with the core idea. Like, and I'll give you an example. Yeah, please. When I was at Pinterest, I remember, and I I mentioned, I allude to this in my blog post without actually calling it out explicitly, that 
I remember there was a feature that I was working on with a designer, and this was very, very early days of Pinterest. And we, you know, we wanted to change the notifications that you get when someone repins something that you've pinned. And we, instead of making it this kind of text notification of, you know, Sarah Tavel repinned your pin, it was showing you the board onto which your pin got repinned. And so it was visual, it created a discovery experience. Like I thought it was going to be transformative for Pinterest. I thought it was the best thing ever. I was so excited to ship it. And we shipped it to an ex- you know a percentage of users. I can't remember how many, and they absolutely hated it. You know, it was we realized that we had underappreciated how important the social validation was to our users, and that you know we had also removed the like notifications. And so we just we underappreciated something core to our system, which we had a hypothesis that was all about discovery. And users told us very clearly that, no, you're wrong. And and so that was a case where there wasn't more pushing through on that feature. We were actually wrong at a very base foundational level. And did it, had it crossed your mind that this could be the case? Was there, or was it just completely oblivious to? You know, I, I'll admit that when we shipped it, I think we, yeah, we underestimated it. Like, honestly, we underestimated it. And I'll admit that when we, when we started to get, like the community team was coming to me every hour, like up in arms because they were getting all these angry messages from our users. And I was like, no, we have to, like, I, I believe very deeply that the users who write into your community team and complain or the ones that are writing on your Facebook wall every time you ship something are not the users that you should be optimizing for. They're your power users and they have a very different view and very different understanding of your product than the users that you really need to be building for and kind of keeping in mind for the most part. And so I was very much like, let's wait and see what the data says. And so we, I kind of toughed it out, um, probably made some, some enemies internally uh, to just get a week of data and see what the numbers said. And the numbers said that we were very wrong. And so we we retracted that feature. But that's, you know, that's part of the learning process. No, and that's human. Sometimes it is just straight up short-term wrong, yeah. long-term wrong. Yeah, yeah. And One important, important thing, though, about this is that, I, so one, it was to a small percentage of the users. But, you know, a company is always shipping experiments. And if you're only learning from the things that work, you're going to be learning from a minority of the opportunities to actually learn. And so, you know, this was really early days at Pinterest. And it was actually, even though the feature itself was a abject failure, there was a real important core insight that we all learned from it being such a strong, unanticipated reaction. And so it is so important to learn from the things that don't work as well. Mm-hmm. What are some things bringing back to venture investing that that didn't work that you still think about and have influenced how you operate? Today? Didn't work in terms of investments and either investments or approaches to investing or something in the last few years where you're like, okay, that didn't work, and it now guides how you operate today. One of the things that I have noticed. And I give founders this advice when I'm meeting with them about their investment is that sometimes 
a founder thinks that their job during the fundraising process is to sell a VC on their company. And what I mean by that is that there, there sometimes can be an orientation of like, don't look over there. You know, I don't want you to know the things that are keeping me up at night. I want to only tell you the things that are great. And then what happens is that you have that first board meeting and the VC doesn't, it is either doesn't really understand the business or is surprised by whatever they see. And the worst case scenario, I think sometimes is where the VC believes one thing that is the future of the company, whereas the founder really believes something else, but didn't want to articulate it for whatever reason during the fundraising process. Mm -hmm. And so I always give founders the advice that I really take also, which is as much as possible, find a partner who you can get on the same side of the table as, as you and, and tell them the things that keep you up at night and really like what, you know, the most authentic way that you can describe the future of the company that you, that you see and find someone who is aligned with that. Because the worst thing, and I've seen this, is to have a VC come onto your board and then have a different expectation or understanding or vision for what the company ends up doing. And that's, that's not a place you want to be. Yeah, it is. It, it's, it actually brings to mind whether it's the hype cycle of a feature that and that that upward swing can be born from honestly many ways it can be born from i know my own experience born from for us at tilt we pre, one of the one of the things that i think about consistently is uh is one of the things that probably the biggest thing that determines or dooms founders and and startups is premature scaling when you start to expand the product of the team uh, your monthly burn, and it's way ahead of where you should be. And and then you do get in these cycles of thinking, okay, we need some Hail Marys to fix this. Yeah, This feature, I need to, we all just need to brainstorm through a 10-day kind of quest to think through what are the things that are going to solve this. And then you really do, when, when you're in a place of need, of desperation, of needing a feature to work, you yeah. can't help but to spend a lot of mental energy getting too excited about the potential or rallying the team around the potential because the baseline is is well below that threshold of of health yeah. and and yeah it sounds like when you're or it feels like when you are fundraising to do the same then you're in the mode of all right I need to bring on this investor because I need their money we need right. need need yeah, yeah. rather than this is what we want we want a partner that can come in we want to interview 15 potential board members because we want the one that understands our business the best that has the most unique insight and if you can come from that place of strength which does take a lot of bringing back to another concept you you brought up a lot of feeling wrong in the short term it's mm-hmm. it is far more encouraged it takes a lot, yeah, of, courage a lot of courage to do that because i mean i think what you articulated is is um probably hard-earned wisdom and it's very very important for people to hear it because it is so true. Like you, like I always am of the opinion that like the, I'll, I'll never ever advocate for a decision that hurts us in the long term to look good in the short term. And I think a lot of times people do that for fundraising where they make decisions, short-term decisions, whether it's product decisions, whether it's, you know, people that they hire or, or don't, you know, hire or, you know, don't upgrade that is an optimization for a fundraising process instead of 
the long term that you should be building for. And then it puts the fundraising conversation into a, yeah, I need someone. So who's going to give me a term sheet? And let's just close that versus coming from a position of strength and not just taking the first term sheet that comes to you, but really thinking about who's the partner who will make me the best version of myself. And that's that's the bar that I aspire to, which is I want, you know, I've actually said no to a company before because I actually didn't think I was going to be the best partner for that company. I thought that given what they needed at the time, there was going to be another investor out there who would be a better fit for them. Because I think that what a founder should aspire to when they're raising money is to find the board member who's going to push them to be the best version of themselves. And you can only find that if you give yourself the space to to do that dating and really get to know the other person who would be around your table. It also brings it back to to the concept of if you are the the general partner, the GP, the the board member that they're interacting with, and not kind of a, a large team of twelve other people, you're going to CC and send them over here for recruiting or over here for for marketing. Then it really forces you to get really honest on okay, what can I be really helpful on. And in contrast, it doesn't allow you to think, well, this wider team will just figure it out because, you know, we got so-and-so over here and -and so-and-so over there. So I can take on almost any board seat across any sector because, you know, we got this incredible XYZ resource and, uh, you know, in the office that's going to handle some tactical thing that comes up. It's, I guess that's a a nuanced reason that platform tentacles can actually work against you. (laughs) Does... Um, I want to ask you about uh, the GP kind of relationship at at a, a VC firm and then dive into uh, some of my favorite questions to ask guests. But real quick, what is you said that you spend a lot of time with your, is it four other GPs? Correct. What is the time spent? What does it look like? What does to a founder it can, and to someone that doesn't work at a VC firm, and obviously they all operate differently. Yeah. But what is it like at Benchmark? Like, what time do you go into the office, or do you work from the city, or remotely meeting with founders every day? I mean, it's it's everything. Probably the thing that's most precious and like sacred to Benchmark is that we spend Monday together, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, we come in, we have breakfast together, we have a completely unstructured day, so there's no agenda for our Mondays. Well. You know, we'll have companies come in to present, obviously. And so that's maybe the only the only structured part of our day. But beyond that, it is just spending time together. And it can be talking about a podcast that we just listened to or a book or, you know, a company or, you know, something we read like in the news. Like there's there's no or it could be as silly as, I mean, the you know, a movie someone saw or, you know, a basketball game, although that's that's the conversation where I tend to check my email a little bit more but um but it's it's uh you know it's a very unstructured day and it's because we think that to be able to operate as successfully as possible as a team it's not about business all the time but it's actually about getting to know each other and having that trusted relationship with each other and i think the affection with each other so that we can be as truth seeking as a group to find the right companies to invest in and then be as 
team-oriented as possible in supporting those companies. So there's no, there's no orientation towards these are Sarah's companies or Chathan's companies or Eric's, you know, like none of that. Mm-hmm. It's about, it's a benchmark portfolio company. How do we make those companies successful? That's pretty surprising to hear that it's agendaless. Was that surprising for you? Is that is that something that you had experienced at Greylock or Bessemer? It was no. It's compl- It's one of those things that you understand rationally. So I had read E Boys when I was getting to know Benchmark. Like they told me that there was no agenda on Mondays, and still you realize that you are just used to an agenda. So I, I remember coming into my first partnership meeting um, when I first joined Benchmark and sitting there and. They just started, I can't remember who started talking about something random from the weekend. And I kept on waiting for someone to say, okay, it's time for us to talk about, you know, our portfolio. Mm-hmm. But that moment never happens. There's no... Really? How long does the meeting I go? Mean, when until, that until it ends. <laughs> how, oh, really? I mean, we, you know, yeah, until it ends. Like an like, hour, two hours, no, three hours? No, no, no. no. I mean, we, we will typically finish around three or so to have a couple hours to catch up on stuff and then we'll do a dinner. And so it is, you know... Wow, what time does it start? Uh, 10 a.m. And, and so... like lunch brought in, yeah, so it's we, just we, five we, hours. Of, yeah, like just hanging out together. Um, Where did and, that idea come from? Gosh, you know, I don't know whether that has always been the way uh, or whether that's something new. I actually don't know the answer to that. I remember the chief of staff for Steve Jobs told me years ago that the executive meetings would be blocks of four hours and they would never discuss actual work things because that was for, I guess, for the tactical meetings, for email, for actual decision making meetings, but the executive meetings would discuss things like, which is a better city design, Tokyo or Paris, or like completely like esoteric. the type of conversations we have on our Monday meetings. Yeah. I mean, there's a little bit all like there's definitely a creativity that comes from it. I think there's also just a kind of a pulling the thread of our curiosities, you know, just learning as a group and exploring as a group. And you never know what comes out of those those conversations. Yeah, it's almost like variation is the agenda, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. or some topic that hasn't been discussed before. And that's that's obviously you can find the parallel to to investing or being a great creator or investor is just exposing yourself to varied thinking rather than exposing yourself to just more and more process. Correct. Yeah, that's really fascinating. What are some other quirks um, within the benchmark walls that that you know doesn't have to be super private, but things that you just you hadn't seen uh, in previous firms? I mean, I think the the biggest thing is the equal partnership. You know, from the outside, it's easy to reduce an equal partnership to something about compensation. You know? Yeah. Do you mind telling uh, listeners what what equal partnership really means, or what a typical partnership looks like? Sure. Well, a typical, like a more traditional partnership, is one in, that has usually different tiers of partners. So, typically, like a firm might have what they call a managing partner. So, the managing partner is someone who you know, as part of a small group of partners, the managing partners, decide things like hiring and firing of partners, of, of other people in the in the firm. They sometimes are the ones, you know, and, and even more hierarchical firms are the ones that actually vote on investments and make the, the decisions whether or not to invest. And then they control what's called the management company, which is basically 
the fees that get paid to the firm, you know, they're the ones that decide how those fees get split amongst all the professionals in that firm. And typically, the people who are the managing partners split the lion's share of those fees. And then when there is distribute, when you know there's a successful company and there's the distribution, which is the carry that the venture partners get as a result of making a great investment, gets split amongst the partners, the investing partners that have participation in, in the fund. The managing partners typically have the lion's share of those gains also. And so there is, you know, there's a compensation part of it that's that's hierarchical and can reflect just, you know, success, tenure, all those things. What would that, what are specific, what would be like uh, fake examples of what those could look like? Oh, it's impossible to make it up. But like, just imagine there's a majority of the economics gets split amongst a group of people who are the senior partners in a firm. And then the junior partners are the ones who hope to earn the right over time to become a managing partner and, mm. and, and kind of participate then in more of the, the economics. And so you have a hierarchy that is organizational and structure. You know, you have the management committee that makes the hiring decisions, firing decisions, et cetera, compensation decisions. And to founders and outside the firm, you, you don't know who you can yes, you, try I mean, to assume, yeah, yeah, but you don't really know, oh, right. this is a junior partner, this is a senior right. partner. Right, everybody has the same title right, right. now in mm-hmm. firms. That's uh, that's an innovation that's happened in the last few years. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> that innovation. Yeah. Um, whereas at Benchmark, you come in as a new partner and there is no management committee or there's no junior partners or senior partners or other junior people. There is just the, the general partners. And we split all the economics equally. This was an innovation. Like the founders of Benchmark were actually those junior people, you know, at other firms. They weren't junior, but they weren't participating in the economics as much as the kind of older partners were, where they were, were, and they realized, hey, we're the ones doing all the work. This isn't fair. So they created Benchmark as an equal partnership from day one. And I have to say that. I didn't realize how much having a hierarchy was uh, just kind of this, you know, just like I I spoke about just realizing that you always expect and just are used to the structure of an agenda. You don't realize until you experience a partnership like Benchmark, a truly equal partnership, that you always are used to and expect a hierarchy unless you get to, you're either the CEO, in which case, the hierarchy is below you, but you still have a hierarchy. Or you get to experience what it feels like to start as a partner and be treated as an equal partner. There's like a culture of equality at Benchmark that I think is so different than anything else I've experienced. And so once you start at Benchmark, you realize that the equal partnership isn't a compensation thing. It's a culture, it's an organizational thing, and it's a compensation thing. And that is very different. And I believe that the founders that we work with feel that difference because they feel like it's not just Sarah who's on my board who I can lean on, but I can lean on any of the partners if there's something specific I need. That's really, yeah, I imagine that it is in any meeting, you can feel hierarchy or you can feel lack of hierarchy. And uh, I imagine it works really well for agenda meetings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
yeah. can't imagine how awkward and, it can and look, be. With... Like hierarchy by itself isn't a bad thing. It's you know every you it can need be helpful, right? Hierarchy for a bigger organization, but there's a little. That's part of the reason why we've stayed small, is that we would have to change things fundamental to benchmark if we wanted to scale our mm. business. And yeah, there's just something that that changes, and so. Other firms have to have hierarchies because they just have more partners and it's a different way of doing the business. It's a way of scaling the business and we've just chosen not to do that. Well, that's that's really cool perspective and, and helpful. It's illumination on on benchmark, which is so well regarded, but uh, but likely well regarded because it's like the best companies anomalous. And those those things sound pretty anomalous. I wanted to ask you two more questions. One is, Tell me three stories that have helped shape who you have become as a person. It could be professional, it could be social, it could be super personal, anything. Yeah, well, so I, uh, when you, these are the only questions that I got to think about before coming in today. And it was funny the ones that, that came to mind. Um, the first, and this is, you know, I'm a new mom now, I have a one and a half year old. And I remembered the story from my childhood and I, I said it to my mom and she completely didn't remember it. But when I was little, I remember once, and this is, I, I feel funny even talking about this story. I, I can't remember what was going on. I was, I don't remember how old I was. And I was crying. I was, you know, in hysterics. Uh, I, I'm one of five, and so I'm sure oh, I'm that there was. Five. Oh, are you really? Yeah, oh, I'm that's, the youngest. I, oh, that's I'm the oldest. Oh, that's awesome. very funny. Awesome. So, as you understand, then like life, life was chaotic at home, mm-hmm. and I was crying about something, and I cried so hard that I actually made myself throw up. And I remember being there, and I like looked, and I was like, "Oh, this is amazing! Now my mom is." gonna feel bad for me i'm gonna get attention how old were you with i can't remember i'm gonna guess four or five Mm. something like that and so i i got my mom and you know expecting her to give me a hug or you know console me and instead she got mad at me and she told me to clean it up myself Mm. and i like look back on that and it was such an interesting lesson about you know, I mean, A, not like, <laughs> could have been such a, a lesson of how to be emotionally manipulative, you know, like to get upset and then you get right. attention that way. Yeah. Right. But instead it was a lesson in like, don't feel sorry for yourself. And I think that actually became a really important part of who I am, which is just like, you got to clean up your own mess and don't feel sorry for yourself. That's so cool. You can kind of map why that would, ha- you you get so stung by this unexpected experience. Yes. That then when you have the chance, a fork in the road to potentially try to elicit that same type of emotional manipulation, you, you're you like, nope, that did not work last time. And that was super <laughs> that was not painful. A good yeah, that was not a good experience. And so then it just becomes something that you, you know, I don't know, fast forward three years and a yeah. solid mental loop is, is established. Yes. It's, you know, it's funny, like with um, our son now, we always joke, we're like, we know we're going to give him a primal wound, so let's be intentional about what, what <laughs> primal wound we give him, but we haven't figured out how to do that just yet. Yeah. Um, you know, the second story that I thought about was that between high school and college, I, I needed to make money. And the job that I ended up getting was going door-to-door for a nonprofit called the New York Public Interest Research Group. 
And I don't know if listeners have ever experienced someone knocking on their door and trying to raise money for something or standing on the sidewalk and trying to stop you uh, so that you'll, you'll contribute to that cause. Well, that was me. And it was a really foundational experience for me because I learned, you know, you, you of course get doors slammed in your face, but I learned that I was really good at it. And I was, I think I was one of the best, if not the best there doing it. And I had always been, you know, a leader and whatever I did, I became the captain of it. But to learn to sell and to learn that you're great at selling was, I, if I, I look back and look and kind of, you know, connect all the dots, it was this job that leads me to sitting here right now. Because really? when I then went to college, uh, someone, um, I needed to make money. And I realized that there was this job where I could sell ads for some of the publications at Harvard. There was the unofficial guide to life at Harvard, Let's Go. There was like different publications. And so it was because I had this summer experience of going door to door that I had learned to sell. So I got this job, you know, selling advertisements and ended up selling ads for a lot of different things. I was a local ad salesperson basically in college, made a lot of money doing that started a general contracting business because I knew I could sell. And then when it was time to apply to new jobs, you know, I, I joined a strategy consulting firm that was a startup and it started to fail 10 months into my job. And I started to look for something new and was looking at investing because I'd always been interested in public investing. And a friend of mine told me about venture capital. And I realized that the kind of entry-level role in a venture firm was cold calling startups. Mm. And so, and it was, you know, I was a terrible student in college. I think I was a B or a B plus student. Like I was never going to get hired by a McKinsey or a Goldman Sachs. Like they would, I didn't, I don't even think I bothered to apply because I knew I wouldn't even get the interview, but it just so happened that the random set of work experiences that I had had while in college was the perfect fit for this entry-level role in a venture firm. And that's, you know, that's how I got started at Bessemer. Did you know that you were good at sales? Did you have a sense that you were good at sales before even that first, that first job? I don't think so. I just never really, I mean, I was always, I was that kid that was always selling, I guess. Like I was, you know, organizing my four younger siblings to do bake sales or, you know, to sell their toys in the park, you know, in the playground. Like I was always that kid, Mm -hmm. but you don't really understand that you're, good at selling, I think, until you actually do a sales job. Yeah, that's interesting. It brings me just uh, back to the topic around selling to a VC to get a term sheet. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, there's the distinction between a lawyer whose only job is to convince. It's not truth. It's just if they can convince a jury, then boom, that's the job to convince. And, And a scientist who's, if you could, if you're wrong in the short term, but are right in the short term, but wrong in the long term, then what's the point of the paper you wrote seven years ago or the this study that is now unverified? And it's it's actually the commitment to truth. Mm. And just brings up a really interesting contrast of there are times when it is a commitment to persuasion and there are times, and I think you touched on the perfect time when you are raising capital and bringing on partners or hiring anyone to join the team, bring on anyone to join the team. Those are the times to not sell, to not convince but actually just use it as a, as an experiment with truth. And because it is, I 
speaking of hard-earned wisdom, it is just startups are, that's the most amazing thing about them is their confrontations with truth every day, yeah, every year. And, uh, and you're going to have that confrontation one way or another. But that's, I, it doesn't surprise me that you'd be really good at, at, at sales. Um, okay, what's the third story that comes to mind? The third story that came to mind for me was joining Bessemer. And I remember interviewing at Bessemer and Jeremy Levine was the person who hired me. And I owe so much of my career to this person. He's just an incredible investor, person, mentor, and and, and and everything else. I remember him saying to me, and this was probably the final interview, like, it was almost like, you know that you would be the only woman here. And so this was a firm of, I don't know, 30 investment professionals. Wow. And I was the first woman that they'd hired, I don't know how long ago, 10 years, let's call it. And it was funny, like, I, I remember thinking, saying, oh yeah, it's not going to be a problem. And I, I was like, I was a rugby player, like I'm tough. And then I remember my first Monday, my first day at work there. And I can't even begin to articulate to you how overwhelmed I felt by the experience. Like I remember sitting in a, the Monday partnership meeting. And again, I was new to technology. I'd been a philosophy major in college. Like I was mm. not a tech person. And as much as I had always been interested in investing, and my dad was a, a public equity investor himself, I, you know, I didn't really know the language of, of investing. And so I remember sitting in this partnership meeting and the, one of the partners, uh, Bob Goodman, whom I adore, was talking about a green shoe and a catbird seat. And, you know, there were, of course, all this technology stuff. And and now, you know, like I understand what a green shoe is. And what is a green shoe? It's part of a, an a IPO process. Um, oh, okay. it's, a, it's something that bankers do to, to um, well, I won't go into it. There's, there's, okay. uh, there's, it's a longer conversation. Um, but so it was, it was just such an overwhelming experience, honestly, and really an intimidating experience because I felt completely in over, like it's, it's an it's a crazy experience to to really be the only woman in the room for the first time in your life and to also not just be the only woman in the room where it just everybody felt bigger to me and it felt like their voices were stronger than mine but then also to feel completely in over my head in terms of the subject matter content to like not even feel like they were speaking english you know it mm -hmm. it felt i i just remember it so vividly a feeling like, oh boy. And and so that was, you know, that was the kind of trial by fire in a way of getting used to being the only woman in the room. How long did it take you to get used to that? I don't notice that anymore. But you only but then when you're not the only woman in a room or you're in a room of more women than men, you realize like, ooh, that feels good. You know, that feels very different. But I don't remember how long it took me. Like I I'll have moments all the time. I remember being at Pinterest and I was, you know, I was in charge of, I was a product lead for our discovery team. And so I remember once being in a room and I was leading, it was all the engineers in the rooms and we were brainstorming what we were going to build that quarter. And so there was probably 30 people squished into this room and another engineer, uh, a woman, Tracy Chow, uh, who was the first tech lead I worked with at Pinterest, she was not in the room. She was walking by. It was one of these glass, like kind of 
uh, fishbowl type conference rooms. And she emailed me and she said, are you the only woman in that room? And I looked around and realized, oh yeah, it's all the engineers in this room are men. And you just, do you stop noticing it? But I think for me, when I started at Bessemer and it was so new to me to feel that way, to feel like the only woman in the room and feel really intimidated by being the only woman in the room, I just put my head down and outworked the guys, you know? And like what, you know, I was, again, incredibly lucky to be working with, with Jeremy Levine in particular because, you know, he really took me under his, his wing and ended up, you know, he became a partner at Bessemer and he ended up um, asking me to be the, the first associate that he, that he hired. And mm-hmm. so I started to work with him. I mean, I got promoted beyond the analyst role into being the associate for him. And, uh, and I think that was part of the process for me of getting more and more comfortable with it. And then the good thing also is that even though I was the first woman that Bessemer hired in, uh, again, I don't remember how long it was, let's say 10 years, then after me, the next two analysts that we hired at Bessemer were women. And every year after that, Bessemer has been incredible at hiring women. I think that Bessemer is probably an unsung hero in terms of finding and nurturing women investors. But and I like to say I broke the seal, yeah. but it was uh, it was a very very different experience and one that of course has an impact on you. Yeah, that sounds. I mean, it's one thing to be a minority in a group that you feel like okay, this is a distinguishing feature. It's another to be in kind of fish out of water in a brand new field that you really needed the tribal knowledge of, yes. of those around you, and it feels like it's a another layer to to where you feel like, okay, if I look stupid by asking this question or that question, then there's a chance it fits right into some caricature in someone's head um, or uh, prejudice in someone's head. That, that Yeah, that sounds really well, tough. I mean, and I will look and it was, I mean, it was, it was a growing process, right? Like I remember, you know, it's funny also, like when you are a other other people don't realize that they are not, that they're in the hegemony, right? And so well, I remember having, you know, my, I was six months into the job or whatever it was at Bessemer and had my first a performance review. And part of the feedback I got was, you should be more assertive. And it was, oh my God, I am, when I'm in a group of women, I'm the most assertive person there, but you don't understand what my experience is of being the only woman in the room. And and so it was almost for me, like I had to get comfortable being assertive in that context by building credibility over time. That was the way I knew how to, to get comfortable. And so it is a growing process. And it's a way where people do say that you you feel sometimes like you have to work twice as hard to be seen as half as good. There is something to that. How did you take that feedback back then? And how would you take it today if you... If if someone said, you know, in a in a performance review or an offhand statement like that, how did you take it back then? And oh well, I I remember saying to Jeremy like, I think it's because I'm the only woman here, and he was like, oh, I didn't even think about that. And I think there was a little bit of saying the thing that I felt that helped unlock it a little bit. Look, I think back then there was no awareness of subconscious bias or you know sexism 
uh, or just the differences that we have. Like there's the those kind of unappreciated, silent things that happen between people, and and so I think we're probably if it was if it was now it would be actually a very different conversation because it wouldn't have been something that was unrecognized probably it's crazy that it was just a few how many years ago was that I mean, that was 2006 okay so not 13 years ago yeah it's just like this isn't like mad men tv show 50 years ago right. it's right. 2006 and you were quite young so yeah, you're I mean, quite young today I so, so was... it's like it's it's not like you you're you know gray haired back in my day it was 13 yeah, years yeah. ago benchmark did benchmark have a female no uh, i was the of? first wow yeah that's two years ago. Yeah. And I will say though, like at Bessemer, part of it was I was the youngest person there. I was the smallest person there. And I was the only woman. And that's, you know, it's, and I was completely new to investing in technology. You know, now I don't notice it anymore. It's just become so used to it and I don't care about it anymore. Yeah. Oh, what do you mean? Well, I just like, I, in the beginning, like when it was the first experience, I couldn't not see it. You know, I could see how the men, you know, my, there was three other analysts at the time. I could see how they were able to engage with the male partners in a way that I didn't feel comfortable with. You know, there's, there's something like, I think broiness is really men flirting with each other. And, and I could see how they would basically flirt with each other. And it wasn't something that I could participate in. It didn't feel comfortable to me at all. And so my answer was to kind of be heads down and just work and earn, you know, build my credibility. And now things are are so, I mean, just the culture of companies is so different. The way that we're used to working together is so different that it is, yeah, just, it's changed a lot. Yeah. It's like, we're all going through exposure therapy that's right. together yeah. uh, of different ways of working. And it's, that's a really interesting uh, articulation of being assertive it can be perceived in, in one realm of just how you communicate in a meeting with 12 people right. or it could be in your interpretation uh if i heard you correctly of like well actually i'm going to just put my hands down in the long term i'm going to be assertive yes but it, it, it might not show up in a 20-minute stand-up meeting in in a you know a preconditioned form but the uh, so you don't notice it these days well i notice i absolutely notice broiness and i hate broiness because broiness is men flirting with other men that's such an interesting articulation it, it, yeah. and so and so like women can't participate in that same way like it is it is definitionally exclusion you know of of people who aren't in that hegemony whatever that may be and so one of the things when i was making the decision to join benchmark what i heard so much from the outside was oh it's a boys club and so you know what does that mean like i don't want to join a firm that's a boys club and I would meet each of the partners and have this completely different experience of them versus the reputation that Benchmark had. But it was still this leap of faith that I made, which was, you know, I'm going to trust my instincts on these people that it's not a boys club and that it's actually a, a very different group of people. And, you know, that I think that's part of actually the equality that I feel at Benchmark is that it isn't at all like that. But it's something that you can't help but notice still anywhere in the valley. I mean, there's no question to me that being a woman has benefits and big detractions. Like I 
get, you know, we're so much of what we do as investors is we rely on uh, inbound deal flow. You know, we hope that you, when you meet a company that you think is interesting, that you'll send that company, that you'll think about me um, as someone who should look at the company. Which I have. I've Which you have, absolutely. Think, but really, that's more to y- you as a person, not benchmark. No, uh, I appreciate that. But and then what I realized, though, is that there's a mental concept called homophily, which is that you naturally think about people who are like you, like your mental associations are going to be of people who are more like you, just mm-hmm. naturally. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, we hang out with homogenous groups of people. I hang out with more women than I do with men. And I'm guessing that you hang out with more men than you do women. And My so, wife and daughter, it's usually well, that's, 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 no, yeah, no, but you're totally, of that, yeah. you're totally right. And I think it's 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 also it's also uh, just self interest of okay, I identify with this person Correct. twenty yeah, years in, and in their nothing, career, right, and there's nothing wrong with it. But then what ends up happening is that the networks, the con- these these networks that get built, where you know com- the conduits of deal flow end up being skewed towards men, hmm. and the evidence I have of that is always very clear, which is that. The times when I get a proactive email from someone sending me a company, I'll always have this experience where I'll I'll open my email, I'll say, oh, great, so-and-so sending me a company. And then I open the email up and it's 99 times out of 100, it is a (laughs) menstrual fluid related company, like a new tampon company or something else related to tampons or a female CEO, like a CEO, um, a woman CEO, or a company that is oriented towards women. Mm-hmm. And, and so I have, you know, it's, you could say it's a positive selection bias because I am thought of for those companies, but it also means that the person, when they're normally sending companies, they will only make that extra leap in their minds of, I will send this to Sarah if there is a cue that they have to think beyond their normal like homogenous group of people. Mm-hmm. And so you, you know, so it's just the way things are. I've like have been right. able to do what I do despite that. And I think it's a big part of the reason why All Raise is such an important organization right now is that it is a group of women. Like when I started in venture in 2006, I could count the number of other female investors that I saw on one hand. Now, like we just had a conference maybe a month ago, All Raise is an organization that started off as a group of women uh, VCs, myself included, who realized that we had to do something to change the way, the kind of the power structures of Silicon Valley. And it's now, you know, we did this conference maybe a month ago and there were 600 female investors there, which is just unbelievable to me. And so creating those networks, like, we don't want to create a separate network to Silicon Valley. Like you don't want to create that separateness. You want I like want to disrupt the hegemony, but it does really help in kind of complementing the the systems that we already exist in. Right, or make the hegemony around humanity and competence. Right, that's really fascinating. In depth look, I also like the articulation of broiness as as men flirting with with each other, which like any flirting is that that can be a part of life outside of the office, but uh, quite inappropriate in the office. And it, It's just exclusionary. It makes mm-hmm. it hard for other people to participate in that. Right. It's, it's a way of bonding, and I get it. No, and I know that I've participated yeah. in it and not having, because it. I love 
friendship. I'm extroverted individual, love friendship, and like to think I'm a little bit more on the intellectual side, but certainly love just the connection that happens among joking and and uh, friendliness that happens amongst amongst my male friends. But it that if that that could I can absolutely see it spilling into a work environment where that becomes exclusionary because it's lower stakes for a guy to do that with a boss who is a guy and it's pretty high stakes right. for uh, a female to do that. That's right. That's it. Well, thank you for sharing all three of those stories. And I can't believe that it was only 13 years ago that, that you were the first female in a 30 person firm, but that shows one that it's, it's still a big problem, but two, how quickly mindsets can be reset and mindsets can can shift because I think in my maybe it's my uh, millennial mindset or the conditioning of great efforts in in Silicon Valley where it's largely seen as one of the worst places, but I actually see it as one of the best places where this change is happening so openly. And six hundred women from how long ago did you start all race? Oh gosh, I, I think it was. I can't remember if it was when I it was when all the Me Too stuff started really in full force. So I want to say two years ago, maybe. Yeah, only two years. That's amazing. Yeah. So for anyone that feels like they're in in a fight or a movement, and this is, speaks directly to founders as well, that feels like it's you and an idea, and maybe going up against the world, it actually can happen quite quite quickly. Yeah, and, and look, like I usually don't talk about this stuff at all. Like I say no to any panel that's about women, but I realize more and more that I, I have a responsibility to talk about it. And, and it's because it, things do change. But at the same time, we're, we're still in like the second inning. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're nowhere near where the industry needs to be. There's a lot of progress that we're making, but there's still a lot to be done. And so it'll happen when I think as we continue to raise awareness and we have, you know, both the carrot and the stick of of making people realize that if you don't have these people with diverse perspectives around the table, you're going to miss opportunities, investment opportunities. I think that was a big part of me seeing Pinterest was the fact that it was a product that resonated deeply with me from the very first time I used it. Whereas the partners at Bessemer, you know, I remember the classic, like, I don't really get it, but I showed it to my wife and she used it for 30 minutes. So I think it's probably a good product. Like that was yeah. other people's experience of it. That's just very different. And so it's, um, we have to just continue to push this, this, uh, this movement forward. Yeah. It's, well, and it's been helpful as an angel. I've, uh, I've, um, stated it to friends that, and, and other angel investors that my goal is to, to help invest in 50%, uh, male to female ratio of founders. And, and I'm, I'm actually, uh, I guess I'm in some ways glad I've never sent you a female focused uh, founder, <laughs> I don't think, um, or female focused company, but, uh, but I should, because there are some, some yes, amazing ones, clear, but, I love but no, no, for, <laughs> no, but I know your, your yeah. larger point is one well taken. Yeah. That's, uh, that's just a really helpful. I'm glad that you, that you shared that, that, that story, really glad that you shared that story, even if it's not part of your canon that that you go around uh, and uh, on panels around. But um, the last question for you, Sarah, is what is something you think a lot about, but you rarely get a chance to talk about? And maybe this ties into that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I realized that that really was it. 
I mean, I could talk about other things, of course. Like the the conversation we just had was definitely is that um, and extends into motherhood too, which is a new thing for me. But maybe kind of taking a step away from those those subjects, something that's just been on my mind lately has been Twitter, and I was thinking about. I spoke to a product manager who had been at Twitter, maybe she still is, I can't remember, and had been part of the team that helped Twitter move from 160 characters, whatever it was, 140 characters to 280 characters. And as people, I'm sure you know- Unbelievable innovation, by the way. I don't know how they figured that out. Crazy, yes. Between a Tesla or- Yeah, exactly, or AI. That is- um, Kudos to them. You know, it was something I actually found a blog post I wrote in 2010 um, about how Twitter should uh, remove the the character restriction, and and I actually had co- gone into present, you know, talk to the product team at Twitter maybe a year or two ago about product, and one of the things you know we I brought up the character limit. And they were all like, "Oh, you are you probably on the on the team of no character, like you know, not not growing the character restriction." And I actually am on the team of unlimited characters. And and I've been thinking about it more because one of the things that the PM who did get it to two eighty said to me is that I asked her how they they measured the success, like what they actually saw in terms of the the change, kind of pre and post the character extension. And one of the things that she said was that people were nicer to each other. They said, you know, thank you. And there was just like a sentiment change in the conversations that happened when you move from 140 characters to 280 characters. You know, the thing that I I just can't help but see and feel deeply when I look at Twitter is, you know, I, I've gotten so much value out of Twitter. I think that there's something so powerful and so incredible and just democratizing about Twitter and the access that you can have to incredible people um, just by following them or engaging with them on Twitter. And at the same time, it has this fast take kind of trolly uh, mob mentality culture that I think is really bad for society. And I think it's a combination of just having this character restriction that creates a culture of the fast take of you know not taking time when you respond to someone like requiring absolute precision in each word right. because, that that then is so consuming cognitively yeah. consuming you don't even do it and, and people and like and people respond with kind of mean responses because oh it's you know it's short like i i don't have time to write you a more a rich, nuanced, yeah, nuanced uh, yeah. uh response and so you have and then at the same time you have like the retweet culture Whereas, so someone writes a fast take on something, and I think about the Bill Gates episode, and no one, you know, goes to the what primary is that text. About? I don't. Oh well, it, oh, it's just there. You know, Bill Gates gave this um, kind of did this fireside chat with I think it was Aaron Sorkin. I can't remember who it was, and there was you know there was a clip. There was a part of this interview where he it was talking about taxes and wealth tax. And saying, you know, that, you know, the amount of money that he'd spent on, you know, had, had paid in taxes. And someone took part of the clip and wrote, you know, used it, used this joke that, you know, Bill Gates told to create a fast take uh, on billionaires. And and it was, 
you know, no one would actually go and watch the video. Right. They would, why, why do that? You know, that takes You got time. the gist of yeah, it. Yeah, I and got the a, gist. A 10,000 people that have retweeted yes, it and exactly. liked it, so yeah, it must yeah. be true. And so you mm. have this propagation that happens, which creates, you know, this, this like momentum beyond, behind something where it is, you know, it's never the nuanced understanding of the actual thing. And so I just like, I, I know for me, like I have a practice now of always making sure to read the primary text as much as possible or listen to the podcast or watch the video, whatever it is. But the retweet culture just makes it so that you have this mob mentality of things just building and building and building without really, you know, taking that pause that I think is so important to take. And then because you have this character restriction, I think it just creates a, a, a culture where you do have the trolling and you have lack of nuance and you have a, you know, fast take culture that just doesn't feel positive to me. Right. And so, like, is it, you know, on the whole beneficial to society? Like, I, I'm not smart enough to make that evaluation, but I, I do wish Twitter, and I, I get why Twitter stays within this character limitation, but I think it would be better for society as a whole if Twitter removed their character restriction altogether. Yeah. I, man, I love that that take. I hadn't thought about that as as uh, a proxy towards more nuance and more discussion, but it's it seems like a clear-cut one. And it's as you were talking, it made me think just that it, it's the pendulum is swinging, is swinging so quickly towards things like podcasts, where it's like this is the medium of nuance. Like yeah. this episode here is going to be two well, hours, and, and I love that it's rich and know, has nuance to and, it. And I think that part of it, I, I I just wrote this blog post last week or so. No, it was December 3rd, which was, I realized that December 3rd was the 13-year anniversary of me blogging. And I was reflecting on my first blog post, and I realized that the biggest difference, you know, and I talk about being the first woman, I talk about you know, I was an analyst cold calling startups. Like there's just so much that has changed for me in those 13 years. But one of the biggest things is that it was so much easier to press publish on a blog post back then because you didn't have Twitter and you didn't have fast take culture. And there was more nuance in the comment section of a blog post. And it was a more positive community overall. And now I think you see people who tweet something wrong or say something wrong or write something wrong. And then you have this mob that that forms around yeah. them. And I and I was reflecting on exactly what you articulated, which is that I think part of why podcasts have become more and more popular in Silicon Valley right now is that you are given more permission to be authentic and not have to say something right, because it is this live conversation where for the most part, except for those three things, I didn't know what the questions were going to be ahead of time. And so you're getting my authentic response. I have less a less expectation of polish, of political correctness, of getting it right than I do if I were to write something or tweet something. And so it lets people have those conversations in a way that we can't have right now outside of not just podcasting, but but generally on Twitter. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, to the extent that that I think podcasting is it's the greatest gift to humanity that internet is that the internet has given us because it allows you and I to 
to have a conversation hit publish for free. Anyone can listen to it for free halfway around the world instantaneously. But even more than that, it allows for you and I to listen to other conversations Mm -hmm. that we could never be a part of. And you get to listen to these two amazing, three amazing, four amazing people talk about some philosophical topic if if you want to dive into that or psychological or or tech startup. And it's just like, holy shit, I get to listen to experts have this conversation about it. Instead of me, at least for my own experience, I'd bumble through. Even if I was in the conversation, I wouldn't even know what to ask or or how to contribute. It's even better. And it's free. It's doesn't even cost the price of a book. Yeah. It's and I think you're you're totally right. I, you know, there's a there's a lot of when it comes to creation, there's a lot of influence towards concision, conciseness, and and you know, Shakespeare's quote is is I think it's brevity's the soul of wit. Mm-hmm. But but as you're talking, I was just like, it's yeah, there is the pull towards towards witty brevity on on Twitter, but humanity, life is not witty. Yeah. No one wants to just be with the witty friend all day, every day, because they're freaking annoying over time. And life, witty, life is so much more rich. But witty, though, is still the positive version. That of is it. the positive, right? Yeah. Snark. The snark. And, and yeah. mob mentality. And yeah, the, yeah. I mean, like, you know, I'll see someone write, like, uh, someone will tweet something and then someone will write wrong. And like, that's, right. you know, that is, that's their tweet. Yeah. And, you know, and it's like, just, you know, look, I get it. But again, there's the question. It, it's because the product creates a culture where that is a mode of communication. But the, the thing I just can't help but ask myself or wonder about is, yeah, whether, uh, how do you, you know, and I think it's, it's, um, it's a responsibility of any product owner, especially, you know, products now touch so many people. And so, you have to be thinking. I wrote a blog. <laughs> Man, I feel like I keep quoting lo- no, myself. Um, obviously, you should be if you're taking the time to write well, these. I, well, I wrote a blog post about which your how, blog is phenomenal, oh, by the way. I remember you. it even six years ago, seven years ago. I appreciate that. I wrote a post about how, like, the stages of data in a company. You know, in the beginning, you don't know what to measure. You don't like know what really is important to measure, and so you have like, you're measuring way too many things, and you get lost in the noise of it. And then you realize, well, you kind of learn what you're supposed to measure. And then you get to a point eventually where if you really win, you have to start looking outside of the internal system that you have and start thinking about the the reaction, the kind of ex- external influence that your product has. Mm-hmm. And you start, it's not the the things that you can instrument within your product, but it's what is the impact of my product on society? And there's very few companies that get to a point where they have to actually start thinking that way. But I do think Twitter is one of those. And so it was just a, a rumination by me. That's well, that is it's a great one. And I, I think on that existential question of whether humanity is better or, or worse with something like Twitter, yeah, that is uh that's possible to say. But I will say the difference between you know, I'll the, say the, I think Twitter, I think the world is better, but I just I think it would be even better without a character restriction. I, that's such a great fix because I think it is. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just the difference between wisdom of of crowds and and mob mentalities is the connection of the nodes. Yes, when the connections are tightly correlated and it is uh, restricted to very either you get your pick of wit, snark, or critique would be mm-hmm. putting it lightly. Then, then you're connecting mom mentality around all three of those things, and you're going to end up with some some pretty unfortunate outcomes. Yeah. 
Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the no, time. Thank you. My this pleasure. is uh, speaking of the the opposite of that. Thank you so much for taking this uh, this this time for rich, nuance hmm. laden conversation that I really I thoroughly enjoyed and really opened my eyes. It's this conversation is going to make me a better investor. So I'm thank you. Glad to hear it. Thanks, thank Sarah. you. Bye. Bye. friends and listeners. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review. Good or bad, we love hearing from people that that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it. You can also follow us on Twitter at GoBelowTheLine as well as see in our Twitter bio our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover. We read every single one. So thank you for those that have already sent those in. That's it for us today. We will see you next time on Below the Line. Below the Line is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.